Are you ready to perform at your highest potential? Welcome to the Performance Matters Podcast from GP Strategies, your workforce transformation partner. In each episode, we'll interview industry experts and explore best practices and innovative insights to help your organization improve performance. Hello and welcome to the Performance Matters Podcast. I am your host, Michael Teal. By day, I am a creative director on the research and innovation team with a specialty in the automotive sector for uh, about the past 25 years. And it's been a great ride. But I have to say one of my favorite aspects of working here at GP has been for about the past year and a half hosting the Performance Matters Podcast. I'd have to say that one of the best things here has been just the ability to mix and learn from the amazing spectrum of thought leaders we have at GP Strategies. If you're not aware of it, GP Strategies is the world's leading talent transformation organization. What it means is that within the swim lanes of consulting, learning services, and technologies, we have in-house experts in really any industry and area of focus that you can imagine. Today, we happen to have one of the world's foremost leading thought leaders and practitioners in the art of diversity and inclusion. Her name is Angela Peacock. She is our Director of Global Diversity and Inclusion. Unironically, she heads up the diversity and inclusion practice here at GP Strategies formerly known as PDT Global. She hails from a small little hamlet or shire outside of London, and we are honored, honored to have her here. Angie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. People have now got in their head that I come from the Lord of the Rings, and I'm I'm one of the hobbits <laughs> from Lord of the Rings, from the, the shire outside London. That's right. But yeah, hey, the it's shire. lovely to- <laughs> It's lovely to be here with 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 you, Michael, and 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 lovely to be here now as you know a fully fledged um, division of GP Strategies. Um, when I when I think where PDT Global came from, because it's probably probably good to just just share. We um, we built PDT Global over a twenty five year period, um, from being what would have been called a boutique consultancy that had a global specialism, because there aren't many people in the diversity, inclusion and equity field that can do this stuff all over the world, really. There's there's a lot of people that can pretend they can do it. Um, but to be able to say, as we can say, we can run any of our programs in Japan in Japanese, in Brazil, in Portuguese, um, culturally appropriate, linguistically appropriate appropriate, know what the race issues are, know what we can and can't can't say. And that is is quite a specialism. Couple that with the fact that we also have a phenomenal digital offering as well. Um, Everything from micro learning to gamified escape rooms. And when we think about that coming into the great GP strategies and being able to then couple with the phenomenal amount of knowledge that we have around talent in there and talent development, coupling it with your leadership work as well. You know, it's it's a great, great place for us to be. So um, we're, we're very happy um, to, 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 to be that division. Well, we are honored to have you. And you know what? One of the things that we try to do on the Performance Matters podcast 
is add some significant value to the drive time or just the the podcast listening time of talent practitioners all over the globe. And I think they're going to get a lot of value out of this one. Today's topic is nine levers to pull if you're serious about inclusion. And I've got to tell you, everyone, listeners and Angie included, that I am a blank slate on this one. We have nine topics. I have a pen in my hand. I am going to listen to Angie and react and just have a great conversation with her on this one. There's no stilted agenda here. We are, we're just going to listen and riff on this one. Um, but before we get started too far, though, Angie, what I wanted to do uh, for those that hadn't had a chance to listen to your previous episode, which I think we cut about oh, about half a year ago or so, <laughs> is if you could just share a bit of your personal bio with them and what has led you into this world of diversity and inclusion. Of course, of course, I'm, I'm delighted to. My work in this world started through culture change work. Um, senior leadership work and strategy work. Um, so I was part of a small consultancy that did those three things. Um, and what really happened was we started looking across to organisations that were doing diversity work. So I'm going back 15 years now. So it was just diversity work then. And we were looking at the kind of training that they were doing. And if I'm going to be brutal, we looked at it and said, it's not training best practice. It's not working with how adults learn. In a lot of cases... My guess is it was doing more harm than it was good, but nobody was measuring it, so you wouldn't have known. So <laughs> we took that on, right? right? So we took that on um, with a little-known organisation called Cisco um, because they asked us to do some work on something that was then called unconscious bias. Um, and we were working in the leadership sphere at the time around unconscious bias, but we were working around with leaders who really, quite frankly were thinking they were making data-driven decisions, but actually those decisions were riddled with the bias, the bias of the person that provided the data, the bias of what they wanted to see in the data, um, and all sorts of other things. And um, from there, we were sort of catapulted into doing that work around diversity. And then from there, we moved into doing that work properly. Interestingly, the first global place we ever took that work was out of South Africa. And when I mm. think back now, 15 years ago, going out there and bringing the joys of unconscious bias training to the South African um, folk was just ridiculous. I mean, I, I would fire anyone for trying to do that now um, with a little bit of knowledge that we had. But it, it really showed us, I think, what we didn't know. And I think it also showed us that we have to be humble in this work. And anybody claiming to know it all is is really, really failing. Um, because DE and I changes all the time. So my work now is basically, as you said, um, being the global head of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion for the consulting practice um, within GP strategies. I get to speak at conferences. I still advise CEOs the world over. I tend to work with exec boards um, and run workshops and, and so on for, for them. So that's the kind of stuff I do. My team are wonderful. They probably don't need me, frankly. Um, but that's the <laughs> stuff that I get to do. And, and really, what I'm known for is being very challenging. Um, so I'm not everybody's cup of tea, as we would say um, over here. Um, <laughs> 
but I'm also fiercely practical and I think there's not enough practical stuff around generally in this work so I breathe practicality where I can into every single thing that we do and certainly into the nine levers that we're going to hear a little bit more about today. Oh, what a what a great transition. You are a, a real pro here, Angie. So yeah, that thank you for that background. I think that's really helpful for everyone. And in particular, from our last conversation, and by the way, listeners, if you haven't had a chance, I invite you to scroll through our library. I mean, we have years of fantastic uh, background, but if you look for Angela Peacock or Angie Peacock, we had a an, an amazing eye-opening session just on the the notion of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or as I'm seeing it lately, being streamlined down to diversity and inclusion. Pretty soon, we'll probably get it down to one syllable. But um, so many big things that I took away from that that were very practical. Um, so I'm looking forward to this. So without any further ado, Angie, are you ready to drop some serious knowledge on us? Oh, we can certainly try. We can certainly try. Absolutely. Yes, Absolutely. I love it. Okay, so what's the first the first lever, or as you say in, in England, lever, to pull if you're serious about inclusion. Absolutely, yes. There's a first lever, as you say, Michael, two, two countries divided by a single language <laughs> that we have first. But let's go for that one. Right? So the first lever, and, and there are nine, actually, truth. There are nine and a half now, but I'll tell you about that when we get to number four. So the first okay. lever is very much around watching your language. And again, what's really interesting here is I'm going to say something really simple, and I can almost feel... Um, if there are um, HR heads out there or heads of DE and I out there going, what she saying? We don't need to do this. And that is be really clear that there is one story, one dialogue for your definition of diversity, of equity and of inclusion in your organisation. Also be clear that every single one of those, if you needed to do it, could be measured in their practice. So let me, I'm going to come to measurement a little bit later on, but let me give you a few of the definitions and the reasons that we use them. Okay. You take the D, which was there in the first place, right? As you said, you know, I, I go back to when it was diversity and nothing else. But if you just take the D, it's really important to understand that the D is about the numbers. It's about the diversity strands. It is about how many people from historically marginalized groups you have in each of those groups relevant to your country. Um, and it is about you knowing where they sit, what and, and and what their retention numbers are, what they're paid, how often you see them in your talent pipeline, and all of that kind of good stuff. It's the numbers. It is nothing else. Okay. Okay. We very often get diversity and inclusion mixed up together. I mean, I can't tell you if I have a senior team in a room with me and I say, "Can you tell me what diversity is? And tell me what inclusion is?" I swear they will just blend them together in this kind of diverse. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I would, you're, you're asking me and I would, I mean, from what you've said right now is usually I, I've always thought this kind of meant you're skirting around the numbers and you're saying it's actually, no, then, this is, this is the quant right here, right? This is, is, this is yeah. truly, let's put things on a spreadsheet and mm -hmm. let's see where, where we're sitting. Completely. Okay. completely. Okay. It's the numbers. It's the data. It, it's counting the heads. Okay. Inclusion is about creating an environment where everyone with the capability to excel can excel. Now, flourish, do well, whatever you want to replace that with. But it is about ensuring you have an environment for them to do well in. 
And in order to create that environment, the practice of equity needs to come in. Now, if I if I had my way, I would rewrite equity and I would make it a verb because I do think it is something, it's a doing word. It's something that leaders and managers should be doing all of the time. They should be questioning themselves as to whether they are creating the same opportunity for person X as they are for person Y. Um, and I often say, you know, one of the things that leaders should be doing is at the end of every month, every catch up with their, their folks that report into them, they should be saying, OK, tell me the five people that report into you and speak me through what you've done to ensure that there mm. has been an equitable practice that has created an inclusive environment for them in the last month. Um, because red flags wow. fire all over the place when you have those conversations. So, so leave it number one. Absolutely. <laughs> know the difference between those three and don't interchange okay. them. So what, I, what I'm hearing about that, when you say language, you're literally saying make sure that you have a true and universal among your organization uh, you've codified what those three terms mean and that language is key and you need to watch that, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And okay. nothing fluffy cool. because when we get later on to talking about measurement of those three things, what you do not want is any fluffy language where people right. can claim to have done stuff that they haven't done. But more about that when we get to the measurement. I love it. Okay, <laughs> what's number two? Number two, and I, again, I can... Feel my um, DE&I colleagues and perhaps even my HR colleagues yawning at this, but I cannot tell you how important it is. Articulate the business case in a way that matters to the people that report to you. Now, for since time immemorial and diversity time immemorial, we have heard the business case being described as we need more creativity and therefore we need more diversity to drive that creativity. It is so much more than that. There have been hundreds, if not thousands of studies that prove if you have an inclusive environment that drives diversity, so you've got the diversity numbers going up and an inclusive environment, you improve so many dimensions of business. I, there's 10 of them, but if I just pick out a couple that I think are probably interesting to, to our listeners. One of them is risk. Now, who knew that actually, if you have a diverse and inclusive team, you will take better risk assessed, you will make better risk assessed judgments. The decision making processes that you will make will lessen the risk. Now, interestingly, the research on that was done initially on the oil rigs, and it was all about health and safety risk and not okay. necessarily about the risks that you and I would take when we make decisions at work. It was all that research was transferred into the financial services um, arena and from there into other arenas, and it was never disproved. So what you will find is when you have an inclusive environment where the diversity numbers are there and increasing, the demographics are there and increasing, you will have a far better situation around risk. The other one, for anybody listening that likes a bit of compliance and governance, <laughs> guess what compliance and governance is improved as well like right stuff you just wouldn't think of and right. for anybody in a very sales driven organization listening yep sales and customer excellence improves as well direct correlation between sales going up customer view of you going up 
and an inclusive and diverse environment. So it's just more detailed. Angie, for me, what when I hear that, what I see is you're you're battling what I guess I would call unconscious incompetence. Yeah. You, you, if you have, you know, let's just say a bunch of uh, middle-aged white guys uh, doing things, you're you, you don't know what you don't know in terms of what what someone might need, whether from a sales perspective, a customer perspective, like you said, a risk, a, yeah. uh, somebody on the front lines. Um, so. Boy, that that one surely hits home in terms of being a, a value here. So uh, amazing! That's only two, by the way. That's only two. I mean, you're dropping value. I'm just gonna go into my huckster mode here for a second. This is value. We have nine levers. We've had serious value on two right here. I'm already flipping pages on my yellow pad, uh, jotting down notes here. So anything you want to add to number two before we go on? Yeah, just very briefly, I think the one thing for me with number two is there needs to be an organizational statement around why the hell you're doing it. But individual okay. business units also need to take that and translate it back to their individual teams. So when you are having the conversation with marketing, for example, if that's your team, as to why there is this focus on diversity, equity and inclusion in the organisation, you need to be able to point to the fact that you're trying to appeal to a wider demographic, a more diverse demographic. And again, proven research that says you are more likely to do that, weirdly, if you have an inclusive team with some of that demographic <laughs> in that marketing team, for example. So yeah, all, all of that stuff, um, make it relevant to them, make it matter to them. We, we actually, and it's it's really good fun, we do a role play on the business case. I've never seen, I, I tell you, that when, when I run this with exec teams, they get up very awkwardly and sort of stare at each other. And I make them speak <laughs> to each other. And I say, one of you A, one of you B, you A are you, and you B are someone three layers below you in the pecking order that thinks all this diversity and inclusion stuff is a waste of time. You, A, need to convince them, speaking only of the business case, not their personal values, you know, not the fact that it's the right thing to do. There is a place for that, but actually there is an equal place for the business case. So knowing what that is is really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is good. And as you just said, number two could be paraphrased as, why the hell are you doing it? And that's I think it. that's that is a testament of your practical language. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Okay, so what's number three here, Angie? Number three is measurement and greatly underestimated and hugely important. And whenever we have um, clients that come to us and say, we're just starting, you know, we generally say they're just starting. And in the next breath, they'll say one of two things. Either we're just starting, we know we want to hit 50% women in our top three ranks or some similar goal um, within the next 18 months, two years, whatever. Um, I always laugh and say, so what, what are you what are you planning to do? How are you planning to get rid of the men that are sitting there? Are you, are, you know, are we, are we going to shoot them? What's going to go on with them then? <laughs> Frankly, I've looked at your numbers and unless there's a miracle gust of wind, they're not going anywhere and you're not going to get back to that number. And, and, and in terms of measurement, I always say to this, we need to know where we are at the beginning, and that is diversity demographics. So you will have different countries where you are allowed to measure different things. Um, and it is never a one size fits all globally, except possibly in terms of gender. But anything else, any of the other demographics, it varies from it even varies in the US from state to state in some cases. So, you know, it, it does vary. However, once you have got that basic 
that is where you start to build to the more complex. And it's the more complex that will give you far more power. And if I just pull out two of the more powerful measurements that, that certainly we use um, and, and we recommend, the first is talent velocity. It is not enough to know how many people from different cultural backgrounds or different racial backgrounds you have in your organization. You need to know where they are, what they're doing, what projects they've been on, and how they are moving up the talent pipeline or if they're moving up the talent pipeline. But even that is not enough. What we also have discovered is if at the same time you know what the privileged group is doing along that pipeline. So in other words, I know if we're talking about the US and the UK, what the straight, white, middle-aged guys are doing right. as well. Okay. How they got in, who they knew, the projects they went on, who lifted them. Then we put those two pieces of data together and we are able to pull out, okay, these are your pinch points. This is where it's going wrong. So rather than then throwing mud at the wall, you actually are able to identify here is where the leap is. Here is where we move people up because they've been on exciting projects and actually the historically marginalized people didn't even get a look in. So it's that. Interesting. Okay. Important. That makes sense. So Andy, tell me if I'm leading too far, if this is going to be another one, but um, is this something where our diversity and inclusion team also has preset software solutions, technology solutions to, uh, I, I guess I'd say add, uh, yeah, I don't I even mean, know what the word is, to streamline yes. this, to facilitate this? Yes, 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 we do. Okay. Um, what I'd also say is it is quite likely and with a lot of clients that they have the ability to do that themselves, but they just don't know how. So our consultancy okay. team can point that out and they can repeat okay. it. What, what we then do is advise on it. So once we see what those numbers are we bring those two together and say okay i can see where this and this is causing you this problem the other thing that we do um which is interesting is what we call predictive now predictive is in some ways more powerful than the talent velocity piece because once you've got the talent hmm. velocity piece if you and most clients ask us to look forward five years i always say they should be looking forward 10 but they ask us to look forward five so what we are able to say to them at that point is, if you carry on doing what you are doing, obviously we can't predict great change in the world. Right. But if you carry on doing what you're doing and all things being equal, this is what your numbers are going to look like in five years' time. And that's normally a bit of a kick in the pants, right? Because that's <laughs> where they can't hide you know, their disillusionment because they're actually looking at a set of stats that's saying this is not going in the right direction and you can make as much noise as you like but you do need to take another long look at the activity that you're doing at the moment because it's not going to get you mm. there so from a, a measurement point of view yeah really really important um that those wow. things are looked so yeah and uh, on the full nine levers which i'm happy to send folks you'll see even more detail and some even more scary stuff okay um, well this is so i mean this is as big as you're saying it's critical to know where you're at mm -hmm. and then also to at least highlight two different subsets of quantifiable measurements one was talent yes. velocity and really cross-referencing yeah. 
a diverse group versus your privileged group, depending mm-hmm. on what, what country uh, you're in. Then also predictive in terms of really getting that almost like it's a, a retirement plan here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I mean, probably doesn't help you in England where you guys have, you know, country funded retirement. But it's like, hey, based on my rate of savings, where am I going to be at? Organizationally speaking, diversity <laughs> speaking is based on what you're doing right now. Are you really going to hit your goals in five to ten years? So, yeah, yeah. huge, uh-huh. huge yeah. stuff. And I, I don't know how good our, our state-funded pension is and retirement is. I don't think you can actually live on it over here anymore, by the way. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, that's a topic for another day here. We, we're, <laughs> we're moving on to number four. What's the fourth we lever are. that you have down here, Angie? And the fourth one is, is something very close to my heart, and it's where a lot of organizations go wrong, and it's accountability. Um, it, it's quite interesting to me that organizations, run very tight ships in terms of accountability for most things that leaders have and anyone really has to to do. You're accountable for your deliverables, right? You've got to hit your numbers. You've got to do what you're doing. And that's managed and it's looked at. What we find is it's not quite so hot on that with DEI. So we see huge fanfares and DEI projects launched and um, everything, everybody's getting excited and perhaps the targets are, are set. And then nobody really bothers to look apart from the odd conversation as to actually what managers are doing. So the work that we started to do about five years ago was to look more closely at this. And we introduced three stages of holding people to account. So let me share the three stages. Okay. And then I'll make it make a bit more sense. So stage one, and we usually say to folks, look, do this for a year. Um, before you get into the heavy stuff. So don't go and say automatically, um, right, I'm going to make you, um, Mr. or Mrs. Leader, responsible for increasing gender diversity by 50% in the next three years, and I'm going to measure you on it, unless you've done the groundwork. The groundwork is, okay, let's gently introduce what we're doing, and let's start to have conversations with leaders that say this, quite simple, what have you done to drive inclusion in the last month, six weeks, however long it is since you last had a conversation with them. Just what have you done? What activity have you done? What conversations have you had with your team? How have you um, struck out there and found out some more information? How have you educated yourself? Just what have you done, right? And that could be anything from attending an ERG group meeting, an employee resource group meeting, to watching a podcast, to linking it in with the head of DEI in the organization, whatever, whatever, whatever. But just what have you done? Let's okay. break that conversation, right? But I'm going to hold you to account for it. It's no good you saying nothing. I don't want to hear that every month. And then the next level to that is, quite frankly, have you stuck to your diversity plan or executed on your diversity plan? You see, a little while ago, one of the things that PDT did was it experimented with a group of clients where we went in and developed diversity plans that were month by month, 18 months to three years for all sizes of organization, right from huge globals to smaller local businesses. And from those intense, I think you'd have to call them that, plans, you know, really intense plans, proper plans with accountability, race on them, the whole lot. We were mm. then able to say to individual business leaders, take from that what you will, but you have to define a diversity plan for you for the next year and your team that is relevant to where you are in geographic terms and where you are in the business. 
Now, what we then say is accountability wise, I can then say to you, show me where you are in that plan. Show me what you've executed on. Show me what your team's done. Show me, you know, how you're holding to the mm. new tools used for recruitment, et cetera, et cetera. So that is stage two. And stage three, which we typically say, don't do this for three years, is we turn that into specific KPIs and we hook it up to some sort of bonus or remuneration structure as well. Okay. All too often, those things are done in the wrong order. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense because, you know, for most most of those in management and leadership, you immediately go to, okay, we're going to alter someone's pay structure. And by doing that, we're going to motivate them. And from what, what you're saying is you really need to go slow to go fast here. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think the other thing I'll say there, which is my 4.5, <laughs> is... <laughs> Do not hold anyone to accountability that you have not got a plan that they can draw down on in order to execute on. You know, again, we, we tend to think that when man, we, we launch these great diversity initiatives and all the managers in our organisation are going to go off on a compulsory piece of digital learning and wake up, go to bed that night, wake up the next morning and a little fairy is <laughs> going to come and put the dust in their heads. So <laughs> they can do a DEI execution without even thinking about it and of course it doesn't work like that it never did so having a decent plan that we can show them i can't tell you how powerful it's been since we've been identifying to organizations and oh. very often they'll kind of go we've got a plan and i'm looking at it thinking no 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 that's a strategic wish list is what that is nobody's held accountable yes line items on a plan there's nothing so the plan drives the accountability don't do one without the other I, I just love for me for number four is my takeaway is show me, you know, it's like, that's great. Show me where you're at. Show me what you've been doing. And it's very meat and potatoes, very tactical. Uh, that, that to me is where I can see having the diversity and inclusion team in, you start to demystify this for people and start to make it feel very real on that end. So accountability, that's, that's massive here. So, okay, you've given us a four and a half already. So there's so much value here beside, beyond the nine, but we're moving on to number five here. We're tipping, tipping the scales going on the yeah. other side here, Angie. So what's number five? Number five is an interesting one and a little bit more straightforward. Make the procurement director your best friend. Okay. Now, that always surprises people. And there's a couple of reasons here. Um, Basically, we're seeing procurement get a higher and higher seat at the boardroom table. We saw that mainly through the ESG um, sustainability issues that, that occurred. Suddenly, we were all looking and procurement was really seen as an enabler of our business and an enabler of our suppliers to ensure that they remain sustainable. The reason I say use them for diversity is it's the same system for diversity that you want in terms of your supply chain. Exactly the same way that your organization did it for sustainability when they went to the suppliers and said, prove okay. it, show us what you got, show, you know, show me what you're doing, show me that you're not going to make my sustainability, um, quote, worse by hiring you to deliver my water coolers or to, to do this work. I am saying the same thing with diversity. 
What we're also seeing, interestingly, through that is organisations, and I'm sure there are loads out there, heck, GP Strategies is one of them. We're seeing organisations that are putting out RFPs, not just saying, tell us about your diversity numbers. They're saying, where are they sitting in your organisation? What does your senior team look like? Tell us what you're doing to change that. And they're also putting warnings out. We'll give you that contract now, but if, if when we renew that in 18 months, that senior three ranks of your organisation still looks like a bunch of white straight guys, then we're not giving it to you again. So be warned. We've even got organisations that are helping their suppliers going in and doing diversity work with them. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, but again... The reason I say make the procurement director your best friend is for all of those reasons. Number one, because you might need some advice on your RFPs when you're filling those out elsewhere. But also because, yeah, I can't put it nicely. I'd, I'd like to see the screws turned on supplier diversity. And I know that when you do that as an organisation, you have to get your act together internally as well. You can't just do that externally and leave yourselves internally all looking and, and feeling the same. That is one I didn't see coming, I will admit it, but I, from, you know, one of my primary roles has been being an RFP uh, respondent, uh, an ideator for RFPs, mm -hmm. and I've seen yeah. that for years. The light bulb is coming on now in my mind about that is strategic, and so one of the levers you're saying, or levers, excuse me, is it's really, you're saying, let's look external as well as internal. So it's, what are you buying? Are you putting the value on what you as a company are, are buying as well? Am I hearing that correctly? Yes, completely and utterly, completely okay. and utterly. You've got to do both. And um, and when you do both and you, you know, with procurement, they are, they are experienced in doing this because they've had to do it in terms of sustainability. So this isn't a new conversation to them. Okay. Um, it's just a new topic. And yeah, really okay. important, really important. And interestingly, it's very, I've very fascinating. quite a lot. Um, and it's, it's gone up over the last three, two years, probably. I'm being asked to speak at more and more procurement conferences. Okay. Because they want to understand what that looks like and why that's important. So I think it's, you know, a really, really important one. That is absolutely. Okay, number six, Angie. What's mm. what's number six on our docket? So number six is around ERG groups, employee resource groups, some people okay. network groups, some people call them employee business groups. Well, whatever you call them, really don't mind. They are sometimes the most powerful and positive force inside organizations for driving up diversity numbers and increasing inclusion um, quotients. However, if you get it wrong, they are also some of the most potentially damaging. Hmm. And very often, and this is where you know I will lose some friends, um, more often than not, in my experience, and I'm sure there are exceptions out there, but if you're an inexperienced team putting in DEI for the first time and you say, to the employee resource groups that are just starting we're going to let you grow organically nine times out of ten it will go wrong and it will go wrong because if you think about the logic historically marginalized groups coming together for the first time getting a safe space getting a space they can share getting a space they can discuss suddenly become very very quickly a lobby group now there is nothing wrong with that because hell we want to hear 
what it feels like to be part of those historically marginalised groups. But if that happens, at the same point, we have a, um, an SLT or an exec team that are not mature enough in their diversity knowledge yet, because we've only just started on this journey, or worse still, have been on the journey before and have not seen anything move forward and therefore are not capable of making it better, and you begin lobbying to them, it's all going to go horribly wrong very, very quickly. And again, we realised this some time ago. So we did some work with some specific clients. And, and what we basically said is this, when these groups begin, or even if they've already begun, because there will be people out there thinking, oh, my God, I've got that wrong. What you can do is realign them all and, and almost repurpose them all. But the first thing they need is a purpose. And the purpose can be lobbying. It can can be networking, it can be just support to that group and of that particular group. It could be something as brutal as contributing to increasing the number of the people in the organisation from that community, because we all make the noise about, you know, gosh, we can't find diverse people that specialise in IT, we can't find people that do this work. Well, actually, right. go to your ERG group and say, have you seen the role the, the vacancies we've got going at the moment, can we share the job board with you? They know just where to go with it. The other area of that is training, although I'm ambivalent about whether historically marginalised groups need specific training or not. Jury's out for me. On that. I, think, right. I think we're the ones that need the training, but I think it's also <laughs> some of the groups at the time is the answer to that one. And the other one that we tend to, to miss when we think about what's their purpose is business issues. You know, give them a business issue to solve. They're going to come at it from a very different view to, you know, whatever any um, homogenous group is within the organisation. So the first thing is make sure that you agree upfront what the purpose is just for the first year or if you're repurposing for the first year of the new year um, that, that they're doing. The other rules I have for those that sit behind those levers is impact over time, sit down with them, draw up a strategy, let's look at how they're going to impact over a year and in the longer term, and have some of the younger people in those groups involved in that strategic development. Again, what better way to get younger people from those groups exposed to senior people that have written strategy before, right? So, you know, again, straight off the bat, you're doing great networking. The other thing is, wow. don't choose the most obvious exec sponsor. I can't tell you. You know, you don't put the only gay person on your exec team to sponsor <laughs> the LGBTQ plus okay. community, right? But also, don't choose the worst one. I can't tell you how many exec teams have said when I've, my eyes have widened in horror when they've said, "This is our, um, this is the the person that's running the DEI council, or this is the person that's representing us." as the exec sponsor in one of our ERG groups. And I listen to what comes out of their mouth and think, oh, my God, you've sent them oh this boy. person. What on <laughs> earth did you think you were doing, right? They're not there to train your exec team. I think that's the, you know, the the, the, the big one. <laughs> okay. And I think the other one with you, <laughs> oh my goodness. ERG, right? <laughs> Which they tend to do. Um, and I think the other one with the ERG groups is don't expect free labour. You know, again, this isn't. It should not be a side of the desk unpaid. I mean, certainly in terms of consultancy firms, where you know writing down your hours and utilisation is important. There should be a code for that if that is what you're involved right. in. If you're a 
professional right. servicemen, but there needs to be a way that you're not expecting people to do this for free. This there is so yes. much. I mean, we could make we could make one entire podcast about that. But that. if I'm oh. if I'm just jotting this down in terms of the codification for number six, what I'm hearing from you is define the purpose of your employee resource groups. What is their be very strategic about their purpose. And you had mentioned that it it could be networking, it could be lobbying, it could be helping with resourcing, it could be looking at strategic business issues. And then it was also, uh, don't pick the, like you said, the obvious person. It's like, hey, they're gay, make them the head of this, right? But also, yeah. let's be thoughtful in terms of, Maybe it could be a, a straight white guy, but find one who also has a, a degree of empathy in there where they're yeah. not trying to train 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 this person into you yeah. know trying to turn Michael Scott into uh, somebody who's a caring nurturer, right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay, good. Anna, I'm learning here. Yeah. I'm taking notes furiously, and this is this is fantastic. That is that is a massive one. So make a mental note. We're gonna have to go back and do a do a whole pot on that one. And that's um, Happy to. That Very to. something, something powerful. Okay. Number seven, because we know your time is precious here. We're bumping up against our time here, Angie. Yeah. So what's number we are, seven? We are, we are. So I'll go very quickly through number seven because the people out there will not be surprised. I'm saying this, train your people wisely. Um, and how to train your people wisely is DEI training should be part of an overall learning pathway, not stuck out on its own. Don't ever do one and done training. It has to be embedded. It has to be part of a continual communication. And even I'm very cynical about those training programs. We've all been on them where we leave at the end. We put our hand on our heart and say, these are the three things I'm going to do differently when I leave here. <laughs> that one, right? Or worse still, where can you all write them down and I'll post it back to you in a month's time. So you you remember them um that doesn't work so decent and serious embedding of course yes i'm going to say we can tell you what that means um but it needs to be part of a learning pathway and okay. it needs to be incredibly practical and i think the other thing i'll just say on that is meet people where they are very often training for anyone under 30 these days is not sit them in a classroom or even a virtual classroom shout at them bore them to death show them a few slides and expect that to work um you know we a lot of the gamified stuff that we do is definitely going out to the millennials and below and is making a difference so again it's thinking about what that looks like um that's awesome number eight looks like i am being very lightweight about it but it's incredibly important and it is improve your HR processes. And, and again, okay. everything from, you know, GP strategies is the biggest talent operator, I think, probably around the, the globe um, these days. The talent processes that you are using everywhere, whoever you are out there, are probably intrinsically biased um, from who gets promoted to how they get selected to interviews to recruitment to exit interviews to reward uh, you know the whole thing if you think about everything in the employee life cycle i can promise you we can reduce the bias in your processes so you know again look <laughs> at them long look and make sure that every single process the other thing i'd say about that is don't do it all at once very often dei work falls off a cliff because HR gets given too much to do 
all at once. Typically, when we write diversity and inclusion plans these days, we look at all of those processes and we put in over an 18-month period um, a complete deep dive on those processes, creating new tools, creating new ways of working, creating the training that they'll need as a result of that, and creating some sort of report back and pilot program. You cannot do all of that for all of those processes all at once. <laughs> and so... So before we get to number nine here, it sounds like with number eight, though, one of the, the core practices or one of the, the core value elements of your team then, Angie, is that going into an organization and basically doing a, a DEI audit, right? And helping them yeah. come together with a realistic and achievable plan. Yes. yes. Okay. I think if, if you look at sort of overall and what we've been doing more and more and more in the last four years is actually writing a plan. So many of our clients have got a strategy or they think they have, or they've got a set of goals. But, you know, when it actually comes down to who is doing what, when, when, and how, they'll even have a set of, we know we need to do this stuff. But unless for me, it's in a month by month plan and someone is responsible and accountable for it, that's not a plan. That's a dream with a date on it. <laughs> and, um, you know, so it's doing right. that. Within that then, yes, we have deep specialists that have done this before in every single process you can possibly imagine in terms of HR. So we know how mm. to, to put those businesses together. That is that is music to my ears there. Okay, number nine. We are closing in on the top of our appointed time. <laughs> number nine. This has got to be the big one here, it right? So yeah. what is this one, Angie? I should probably just say it and run, really. Um, number nine is <laughs> make sure your C-suite means it. If, if I had a dollar... But every time I've stood on stage next to a CEO and they've given a speech from the heart about, I don't know, I I, I really um, didn't realise that we needed DEI until I had a daughter. Or, you know, my favourite one, I didn't realise we needed DEI until my son came out as gay. Um, if I had a dollar for that, I'd be a very wealthy lady. The reality <laughs> is, though, this, if the C-suite doesn't mean it, it will fail. And making sure your C-suite means it does mean making sure that your stakeholder management below the C-suite is powerful. So if you're coming from an HR perspective, if you're coming from a talent perspective, that's the way to go. But I would also say, you know, if you are being asked to do DEI work and you've got even a hunch that your C-suite is not buying in, I would say call us, wouldn't I, Michael? Um, call us, we'll, right. we'll convert them. But, it, it, but seriously, you, you know, you need to do that work before you do anything else. Incredibly, incredibly important. Absolutely. It, it begins and ends at the top, for sure. Everyone's going to look at at your C-suite and see if they're mm -hmm. just looking to put up a flag in front of the mm -hmm. organization or if they really want people to bring their authentic self to, yeah. to the workplace there. So that's, that is powerful. Yeah. Okay, Absolutely. so this is a great list. Um, I, I know that there's listeners out there that are wanting to know more. So what is the best course for any listener that says, I wanna learn more about 
the diversity and inclusion practice at GP Strategies, where should they go, Angie? So they can come directly to me, um, and that's apeacock at gpstrategies.com. They can come to our global account director, who's Julie Lynch, Lynch at gpstrategies.com, or you can look for the DNI pages on the GP Strategies website by all and every means, and we'll get straight back to you. Awesome. Well, listen, on behalf of the entire team, I can't thank you enough for this. Selfishly saying this is just priceless to sit here and be able to take notes from someone as accomplished and really someone who's been in the trenches of this and has done the real work and has you've cut beyond just the platitudes and have dropped a lot of real world knowledge on our listeners here so thank you so much angie we appreciate you pleasure being here michael thank you ever so much um, for inviting me and uh, look forward to the next time The Performance Matters Podcast is brought to you by GP Strategies. Together, we can create a world where business excellence makes possibilities achievable. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get podcasts or listen on our website at gpstrategies.com.